we're live. Welcome to today's program. I'd like to press on with Galatians chapter 6 and just walking through uh, the rest of the book of Galatians. This glorious, great uh, book of God's Word um, is perpetually relevant to every generation and always edifying, encouraging, convicting, and uh, necessary for the church. Uh, Because at any given moment, there will always be uh, individuals uh, who are working hard to obscure the gospel, people who are working hard, sadly, to try to find ways of combining uh, our good works or the fruits of our justification with saving faith uh, in a way that makes good works into saving faith, uh, rather than recognizing that the fruit that grows on the tree um, is not what makes the tree what it is, it simply tells you what kind of a tree it is. So this has been a a very encouraging thing, pardon me, got a lot of really good feedback from this series, and so I'm really excited to to finish up uh, Galatians, hopefully finish it up this afternoon. Um, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted." So here we have kind of some, some final applications uh, after Paul goes through in the previous passage in Galatians 5 there, the works of the flesh, uh, all those things that are listed there, and then the fruits of the Spirit. Most of us memorized those when we were kids, the fruits of the Spirit. And those, as I said before, those are not imperatives. They're not commands, like you better have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Uh, those are the natural byproduct, or should I say supernatural byproduct, of the presence of of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. They will bear uh, those fruits. Okay, so then he moves into chapter 6 here. If someone is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. This passage is often misinterpreted to mean you who are spiritual as if what that's saying is the the super-duper mature (laughs) among you. Uh, as if there are some Christians that are spiritual and others that are carnal or something like that. When he says, you who are spiritual, he means you who are Christians. Few and far between as they might have been in those Galatian churches because of the false gospel that they were clearly okay with. Um, Paul is saying here, if, if you know people are sinning, you who are spiritual, you that actually know Christ, help um, restore those individuals with a spirit of gentleness. You know, don't lower... Uh, the boom, don't um, don't be harsh with them, but restore them in a spirit of gentleness if they are repentant. And, but consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. And that's something we always have to watch out for, is if you're going to be in close proximity to serious sin, you have to watch out that you yourself are not tempted uh, to commit the same sins. I remember listening to a series of uh, lectures by Joe Moorcraft on Nuthetic Counseling, and one of the stories he told was really chilling. He said that um, he actually quotes this passage and some other passages um, that you have to watch yourself if you're dealing with uh, people committing certain sins. And, and there was a pastor, he tells a story about a pastor who was trying to counsel a woman um, who had committed adultery against her husband. And to make a long story short, uh, he ends up committing adultery with her himself. <clears throat> and you just think, good grief, you know, wow. So watch out. Uh, you just never know what we're capable of, um, given the right circumstances, the right um, sequences of events. Uh, if we're at a real spiritual low point, if we're going through really hard times, and uh, we, we've left off our devotions, and we're not being zealous on our Bible reading, and we're not having much Christian fellowship, and we haven't been going to church as often 
uh, we're going to be vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one. And uh, one thing I've, I've shared with a, a lot of folks over the years is um, the story of David, the, the narrative about David um, when he committed adultery and, and multiple homicides. I always um, remind people it wasn't just Uriah <laughs> that was killed uh, near that wall, but a bunch of them got killed. <clears throat> and they were just kind of collateral damage there for David to cover up his, his sin and to get what he wanted. But I think had you told David a month before that that he was going to do that, I think David would probably have been very shocked to hear that what 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 am i going to do all of us um we have to watch out and be careful Uh, you just don't know uh, what you're capable of doing and the the sinful nature that's still at work in us that principle of lawlessness is still very much there and given the right circumstances it can be a real problem so we have to be vigilant about it you have to do as galatians 6 1 says considering yourself lest you also be tempted. <clears throat> so, pardon me. <clears throat> if you're going to try to help people to get out of sin and to encourage them, um, you have to watch out. Watch out that you're not taken in and that you're not tempted to do whatever it is that they're doing. And so you want to be godly in that regard. So, you who are spiritual is not saying you who are in the spiritual upper class, but rather Christians need to restore repentant people uh, with a spirit of gentleness, but be careful. Watch out. Keep your guard up uh, at all times, like we always have to do every day. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's a a great text. We we bear one another's burdens. We we try to put up with one another's sins, as long as they're not, you know, serious, and um, we can can live with them. We do that. But also bear one another's burdens. You bear one another's troubles, uh, one another's sorrows. You know, <clears throat> lately here at church, there's been some pretty pretty hard providences have, have taken place, and we need to uh, to share one another's burdens, to remember one another in prayer, and to try to be an encouragement in whatever ways that we can to those that are suffering. And that's one part of the Christian life that's so important. That's one reason it's so important to be part of, uh, to try to, your best to be a vital, present part of a local church is you need to bear other people's burdens. That's part of why you're a Christian. You're part of the body of Christ and a local body of Christ, not just the universal body of Christ, but a local expression of the body of Christ because those folks need you to bear their burdens and you need them to bear yours. You need someone that you can, uh, un, as David Brainerd used to say, un- unbosom myself and, and like share with and, and talk to and really be transparent to and say, you know, I'm struggling with this or struggling with that. So bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I love verse three. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Okay. If you think you're part of the spiritual upper class or that you're, you're something special, um, you just need to know that you're not. None of us are. Uh, we're all, um, we're all dirt that God breathed the spirit of life into, and we're redeemed, redeemed dirt, if we know the Lord Jesus. Uh, but none of us is, uh, is anything special in that regard in terms of being super-duper important. Um, that's one thing. If I, if I die today, the kingdom of God will be just fine without me. God doesn't, doesn't need me for anything. Uh, but we want to have a, a humble view of ourselves and of our, our place in the world. Verse 4, But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Okay, so you focus on being godly, being holy, 
uh, and not on uh, raising everyone else up to your standard. You know, if you've ever if you've ever met someone um, that kind of looks at themselves as the piety police uh, in your church, that can be a real problem. Um, you know, we'll have a we'll have a care frontation. <laughs> I've heard it. Uh, described like that. Uh, you know, I've noticed that your, uh, your piety isn't quite up to where mine is right now. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna help raise you up to the uh, Olympian heights with me. Um, yeah, that's not a good thing. Examine your own work and then you'll have rejoicing in yourself alone and not in another. See, make sure that you make progress in your own walk. Uh, and then that will be contagious to others. And verse five, for each one shall bear his own load. Verse 6, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. So there you have another contrast. Just like Galatians 5, you know, it's such a great way that this is all put together. You have the objective work of Christ, the, the finished work of Christ and our justification. And then you have these great descriptions. Those that sow to the sinful nature, those that, that live for the flesh, well, that's a non-believer. And those who sow to the spirit, that's a Christian. They will reap everlasting life. Now, so it's amazing. People look at verses like this and say, see, you get into heaven by sowing to the spirit, by doing good. And they'll, they'll turn every, every description like this is turned into a prescription on how to get saved. Or something like that. Well, the whole rest of the book precludes that interpretation of this. What this is describing is believers and unbelievers. Those who sow to the flesh, that's a non-believer. If you sow to your sinful nature and you live for your sinful nature and you're a slave to the sinful nature, you will reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit, that's a believer, will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And then verse 9, this is really, really good. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. How many of y'all feel weary? How many of you feel weary in trying to do good? Uh, it's, it's tough. Uh, when you, if you try to do good and people speak of your good as evil, uh, or you do good and the people that you've tried to do good to uh, turn on you and hate you, uh, that's, that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. And so the Holy Spirit is telling, telling people here, don't grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. I love that phrase, lose heart. And we're always told in Scripture, don't lose heart. And why are we told in Scripture constantly, don't lose heart? Uh, because we have a very strong tendency to lose heart. And what does that mean? What does it mean to lose heart? Think of Luke chapter 18, verses 1 and following. It says, and Jesus told this parable that all men should pray and not lose heart. And it's the parable of the persistent widow that can't get uh, justice from the unjust judge that fears neither God nor man. And we're told that's how we're, we're supposed to pray. If a, if a widow can get justice from a, a scoundrel that doesn't fear God or man, and he's functioning as a judge, someone who's, that's his job, his calling is to give people justice, then we need to know that if we persist in prayer uh, and pray and pray and don't lose heart, uh, that that's what God's will is for us. God wants us to pray and not lose heart. And I think very often he says no for a long time uh, to teach us the, the importance of perseverance, of persistence. 
And I, I just think what a disaster my life would be if God had said yes to everything I've ever asked him for. I look back now and I can remember certain things I asked God for, which had he granted them to me, it would have been really bad for me. So there's lots of things I ask God for every day uh, now and have for many years. And God has said no. Uh, God has said no to things I've prayed for thousands of times. Thousands of times. Now, it might be God's will that on the 10,137th time I ask for it, he's going to say yes to teach me perseverance. There are times I wish God would, would reveal to me how many times I have to pray for something to get it. And then I would just do nothing but, but pray for that. But that's not how you know, God's decree and plan works. He's teaching us perseverance and character and hope. And he wants us to, to love him when the bottom falls out. He wants us to still be devout and be joyful and to uh, be excited about knowing and loving and walking with him even when we are uh, hurting the most. And so that's why the text of scripture, the Holy Spirit says to his beloved church, and Jesus died for these people. Don't grow weary. He, he loved them to the end. And he says, don't grow weary while doing good. There, there's a real sense in which we sometimes feel like it's futile. Like, what's the point? Nobody's listening. There's times, you know, I've like defended the gospel <laughs> against like every kind of, of distortion in our time coming from all quarters. There are times I feel like, what's the point? Nobody's listening. Nobody cares. And I just think, that doesn't matter. You do what's right because it's right. You, you, you stay the course because that's what you're supposed to do. That's your duty to do that regardless of, of the results. And who knows, maybe God will answer uh, prayers after I'm dead and gone. Um, maybe several generations after we're dead and gone. But either way, do what is, what is right and what is good as an expression of gratitude to the Lord for saving you. And don't grow weary. Don't grow weary while doing good. Um, and it's, it's ironic, you know, the Holy Spirit is saying that to people he, he knows are weary. As I sit here before you, I am weary. <laughs> I'm very weary of, of lots of different things, lots of different um, trials that, uh, that we're going through as a church, lots of different trials that we're going through in my own family. But the scripture promises in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So I just want to encourage you, uh, don't lose heart and, and know that, uh, you may feel like you're all by yourself or you may, you may feel like, um, it's pointless and, you know, there's just no, no use to, to anything and nobody's listening. And, you know, we do evangelism. I'm starting to wonder if people ever get saved in America. And I know they do. I know that's just, that's just my, my foolishness and my lack of faith. But you just keep persevering and you press on. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. should make a t-shirt that says <laughs> Galatians 6 verse 9. Great text. Verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I would encourage all of you in whatever your local church is uh, to look for people that you can be a blessing to and uh, try to be an encouragement to people. Um, as surely as, as the sun comes up and goes down every day, there are discouraged people all around you. And there are people who have tremendous heartache all around you. And there are people who are suffering all around you. There are people who have lost a lot all around you. There are people who need a kind word from you all around you. 
So as you have an opportunity, do good to all. That's one of the great things about being alive is that there's always opportunities. There's always opportunities to do good. So do good to all, it says. Do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially those that are part of your fellowship. And I just want to tell you, when you go to church on Sundays, look at people. Look at look into people's faces. Look into their eyes and see. Are there people that look like they're carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders? And I'm telling you, you may think that they're... When I was younger, before I became a ruling elder and then a pastor, I used to go to church every Sunday and think, you know, it just seems so easy for everybody else. <laughs> like, is everyone here struggling as much as I am? I don't think they are. And then I became an elder. No, they are. And everyone's got burdens and troubles and difficulties and things that they're dealing with. And some deal with those things really well. Some people have incredible resilience and joy and a close intimate walk with the Lord. Others are more fragile. Others are somewhere in the middle. But you'll see that. People have incredible burdens and, and have great sorrow and have uh, things in their past that you don't even know about. Um, things that they're, they're not comfortable sharing or talking about or things that are, are still too painful to even discuss. You just don't know what people's stories are. You just don't. So, as you have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Okay, so here you have Paul. Paul wrote Galatians. And I, I guess I guess that the original, the autograph of this book was pretty big. And it may have been because Paul couldn't see very well. He just couldn't see uh, very well. Verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they might not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Wow. Okay, it, like let's um, maybe we can make a parallel. Uh, as many as desire to have a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to walk the aisle and pray the magic prayer or something like that, uh, because then they can they can boast about. Uh, another conversion or something like that. Maybe they measured, they, these Judaizers measured conversions by circumcised Gentiles or something like that. Okay? They, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. It's all about the show. It's all about numbers. It's all about uh, how, how, much, how much spiritual good we think we've done. But you see, the spiritual good that's done is, some, is done by God and not by us. All we do, all we do is preach the word. God does the rest. I mean, preaching the word might get you killed. And it might mean that you, you go to preach the word in a church and the place is empty because you preach the word. Everybody might leave because you preach the word. Okay? We're not looking for a good showing in the flesh. It's not about, look how, quote-unquote, successful we are. What, what is success in ministry? What is success in ministry? It's this stuff, bearing one another's burdens. That success is telling people about the gospel, no matter what the result is. That success. It's faithfulness to God, singing with all your heart on Sundays. It's opening the word of God and reading it and looking for things to obey and changing. That's success in ministry. So let's say someone takes over a church with 400 people in it and three years later it's got 60 left. But that individual has been faithful to the word of God. They have exposited the word of God. As it turns out, the people there didn't really want the word of God. Is he successful? Has he been successful in ministry? We've got to get rid of 
thinking of success in terms of numbers. We have to get rid of that. Success in the eyes of God is worship. Success is faithfulness to the text of scripture, to the gospel. Not how big is our conference or how big is this or how many books have I sold or how popular am I? How many subscribers do I have? Okay, that has nothing to do with success. Nothing. Verse 13. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yeah, the people that want to add stuff to faith in Christ to save them and to get them into heaven, they don't keep the law. That's not such a gloriously clear statement. He's like, not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So they can have another notch in their evangelistic belt. But have they evangelized anyone? Not if they've led them to believe that you get into heaven by circumcision. Or in our time, that you get into heaven by uh, works. Or by obedience. Or by fruit. Or whatever other covenant faithfulness. Or there's you know a zillion different ways of saying it these days. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. It's just, just FYI. The people that add stuff to faith in Christ, the people who are neonomians, uh, who have added our law keeping to that which gets us into heaven, they do not keep the law. They don't keep the law. And that's what you know, I'd love to ask. Neonomians of our time. A, a neonomian is someone who adds law keeping to faith in Christ, or, or they think faith in Christ is law keeping. They, they think that is the way of justification or how you are finally saved or get into heaven. I would love to ask them. Sit them all down in front of you and ask them, so how's it going? Are you going to get into heaven? Are you going to get there into heaven? Are you going to make it? I mean, you're the ones saying that you got to be saved by your fruit or you're saved by your faithfulness or saved by um, faith is obedience to God or faith, um, faith and obedience are organically connected or however you want to say it. So how's it going? You have assurance? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. And if you do, you're deceived. Why? Verse 13. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Okay, let me translate that. Not even those who believe in final salvation by fruit have enough fruit to get into heaven. Not even those who teach that faithfulness to the covenant is what gets you into heaven. They don't keep the law either. They don't keep the law either. But they desire... For you to be part of their group and to believe this stuff so they can boast in your flesh. How degrading is that? See? All these guys are circumcised. See how successful we are? And I love verse 14. Verse 14, Galatians 6.14 is a, is a passage of scripture for the ages. But God forbid that I should boast except... In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's let's translate that to the to the Judaizers of our time. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to boast in my fruit. I'm not going to boast in the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not going to boast in my sanctification. I'm not going to boast in pursuing holiness. I'm not going to boast in putting sin to death. God forbid that I should boast in Anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why is he saying that? Why is this at the close of, of this great letter? Because that's all we have. When you think about death and dying and judgment, what took place at the cross? That was the final judgment. 
That was the fullness of divine wrath against all of our sins. And what is it that Jesus provides to us in giving us his righteousness? That's all God's law requires of us. And so what is there for us to boast in? What is there? For, what else could we possibly boast in? Nothing. Are you thankful that God has changed you and God has liberated you from slavery to sin? Aren't you thankful for all the work that God has done in your life? I sure am for the things God has done in my life. Do I boast in those things? Do, would I rely upon them to get me into heaven? Because if I did, that just shows I don't really understand the gospel. I don't understand Christ then. I don't understand what he did. What Jesus' righteousness does is it meets the requirement of God's law. Think of Romans 8 verse 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, namely justify us, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. That's what Jesus does. That's what his righteousness does. It fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. Okay. Um, 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 um. All right. Uh, Jacob Williams. Howdy. Uh, hold on one second here. For in, or he says, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Right. Jesus' death is my death. His righteousness is my righteousness. I have been crucified to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And then finally, the last three verses. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. A lot of stuff in that phrase, the Israel of God. Who is the Israel of God? It's the true Jews. It's believers in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile. They are the true people of God. Like Paul says in Romans 9 verse 6, for not all, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, meaning not every physical descendant of Israel is part of the true Israel. Only the, the true Jews are believers in Jesus Christ. In verse 17 and 18, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the stigmata of the Lord Jesus, the marks of the Lord Jesus. The, that Greek term is stigmata. Okay, he doesn't mean he, you know, his body had the wounds of Christ on it. He's simply meaning that he'd been beat up and scarred up for the cause of Christ too. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Okay, so there's the end of, of Galatians chapter 6. A lot more could be said about this. But uh, I want to uh, give Jacob Williams here a... Uh, yeah, I'll answer emails about <coughs> questions regarding walking in the faith. People email me a, a lot. A lot of questions about <coughs> things like that. So if you have a question, uh, you can put it over here in the channel. Uh, Jacob Williams, uh, you're welcome to do that here. Uh, let me see who else is over here. There's New Reformation Apologetics. Um, good to see you. Philip Waters, good to see you. There's Lukewarm No More. I know who that guy is. He's emailed me before. And Mason O. Um, yeah, you've been on here before. Jonas, for, for blessed are all they that wait for him. He is worth waiting for. The waiting itself is beneficial to us. It tries faith, exercises patience, trains submission, and endears the blessing when it comes. That's a great Spurgeon quote. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. New Reformation Apologetic says, I'd rather struggle while being led by the Holy Spirit than struggle with my own. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, oh, good. Mason O has been listening to the Genesis stuff. Um, e either one. Here, I'll put my, my email address over here. 
pwhines at gmail.com. There's also the, the pastor at, I think it's brittleheightschurch.org. Um, but, but they both are funneled into my Gmail account. So either way, I'll get it if you send me an email like that. Okay, we are almost at the half hour mark. Uh, let, me, let me see. I actually had a couple other questions in the, my face-to-face folder here. It's, it's been a little while. Uh, yeah, I, need, I would need to look through these. I don't remember. Well, Galatians, I just want to encourage folks, you know, read and reread Galatians. And um, I know most people that, that tune in here are, are habitual Bible readers, which is great. That's wonderful, but just would encourage you to read your Bible. Um, one of the reasons that we're not um, more grounded in the Gospels, people don't read their Bibles much anymore, and we're too attached to gadgets and devices and electronic media and games and junk like that. Okay, Lana and Billy F. Our pastor just taught out of Hebrews 3.12 that you are not saved as an individual, but you're saved as a people. That the primary means of sanctification is the church. Um, well, you, you are saved as an individual, um, but you're part of the, the collective people of God. Um, but every individual is judged as an individual uh, on the day of judgment. And it's, we're, we're saved individually, but brought into the corporate people of God. I'm not sure what he means by saved as a people. Uh, because uh, large groups of people are made up of individuals. So um, the primary means of sanctification is the church. Well, I would, I would say that the, the primary um, means of, of sanctification are uh, dispensed in the church, the word preached and the sacraments administered. So the, the church is the, is the guardian and steward of the means of grace, of the preaching of the word of God, the teaching ministry of the church, and the Lord's Supper and baptism and church discipline. Those are the means by which we're sanctified, but that also includes our own Bible study, our own our own reading of Scripture, and all the rest of that. So that's uh, that's all very important too. Okay, one of my kiddos just got on there. I guess that's Lily. <laughs> so appreciate appreciate whichever one of my clan is on there. Appreciate that. Um, so <clears throat> Galatians, a very important book. Um, oh, okay. I, I I thought I thought that maybe that was the case. What's your opinion on people saying that you only need to, you need to only change your mind and we don't need to repent of all sin? (laughs) Um, My opinion of that is that's very bad. Uh, Metanoia, yeah, the term means a change of mind, um, but it it includes, it includes uh, grieving over and hating our sin because when God changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, uh, there's a changing of masters. Always always think of um, repentance Repentance in terms of, um, every, my whole family's listening. Wow. Hi, everybody. <laughs> That's kind of unusual. They're all listening to me in the living room. That's good. Uh, um, anyway, um, repentance really is the, the expression uh, of, of having a new master. You know, Jesus said, that's one of the most compelling parts of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Matthew chapter, really Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The whole Sermon on the Mount is just glorious stuff. It really is. And when he says in Matthew 6, 24, no one is able to serve two masters. And so you, you think it's helpful to think of everyone in the world as having only one master. There's only room uh, for one. In our affections, there's always only one thing. We're like a, a hard drive that cannot be changed. There's only one master in there. And it's either sin or it's Christ. And so repentance is a <clears throat> turning away from the old master sin and to the new one, Jesus. 
So now you, you love Jesus and you hate your sin. And yet, as Paul says in, <clears throat> in Romans chapter 7, and as scriptures teaches, uh, Galatians 5.17, as we saw in the previous chapter there. In fact, Galatians 5.17 is a good summary of it. Listen, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, the remains of our sinful nature. That's what he means by flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. In other words, the, the new heart that we have, the new heart that we have wants to do good. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, I, I delight in the inner man according to the law of God. I, I want to do what's right, but there's still this lawlessness. There's still this principle of rebelliousness that, that's there that's constantly trying to bring me into captivity to sin and death again. And so I'm in this war. I'm in this huge battle all the time. And that's part of what repentance is. Repentance is engaging the battle. It's engaging the battle. It's grieving over and hating your sin a person who doesn't grieve over and doesn't hate their sin, are they a Christian? Someone who's totally at peace with, with sin in their life and they, they have no desire to move on to holiness? Well, certainly not. Certainly not. Listen to Romans uh, 7.22, or 7.21 to 23. I find then a law, evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. See the new heart there, the one that wills to do good? That's there. I want to do good. I want to obey. I don't want to sin. I find though that, there's evil there too. There's evil present with me. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. You hear that? Warring. There's another law in my members making war against the law of my mind, making war against the new nature that's in me. So that, that battle with sin, that turning from sin, that grieving over and hating sin, that's what repentance is. Now, we're not saved by repentance. We're not to rest in our repentance. God forbid we rest in anything but Christ alone. Uh, we don't rest in repentance. However, uh, repentance is a fruit that's going to always accompany true conversion. Okay, It doesn't save us. We're not saved by it. It's not like there's an inspection of how deep our repentance was on the day of judgment, and then that determines whether you can get to heaven, which, if that did happen, none of us would make it to heaven because we have to repent of how weak our repentance is. <laughs> we have to repent of, of how weak it is. And the thing is, um, I've had people tell me, I'm not satisfied with, with the level of my repentance. And I, my response is, do you expect ever to be? If we meet for lunch sometime and you... I'm finally satisfied with how repentant I am. <laughs> That's when I would start to get worried about you. Okay, why, why, does, why does God want his law uh, to be um, preached with such fervency? Why does God want the law to be preached with such fervency? So that we will all the more intensely long for Christ. So that we'll see our sin all the more clearly and long for Christ and trust in him and also be more empowered by trusting in Christ to obey more and to be to be more godly to be more holy that's one of the byproducts of the work of of God's grace in our lives as we see our need for Jesus we become more and more attached to Christ as we see our need for him as we see our sin and the closer we get to the Lord, the, the more we grow in grace and are closer and closer to the light, the more that light exposes the darkness, exposes the darkness that's in our hearts. And thus we, we recognize how much we need the grace of God to save us. Okay, I have seen a lot of this kind of talk. They treat it as a mere knowledge and acceptance of that knowledge. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's far more than that. It's a it's a change in affection. It's a cha- repentance really is a change in our affections. Like Paul says in Romans seven fifteen, for what I'm doing I do not understand. For what I will to do that I do not practice. But what I hate that I do. In other words, a Christian is going to hate sin. Now, there's still sin in them, and there, there'll be a desire to go do it at times, but in the depths of their heart, they, they, really, they really can't enjoy it. <laughs> Have you noticed that? I mean, even when you want to go sin, if you've walked with the Lord for a while, if you've walked with the Lord for a while, you, you, you hate sin, and you kind of know if you go do it, you're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to enjoy it because the spirit is going to is going to smack you silly for doing it. He's going to to chasten you. He's going to make you lay down on the ground. And he's going to whip you for doing it. And so you know you can't <laughs> you can't sin and enjoy it if you're a Christian because the spirit of God will not allow you to. Now someone's asking about Hebrews three thirteen. Let me see here. Okay, let me back up one verse here. Hebrews three twelve. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an, an evil heart of unbelief. And departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Um, so what's what is the question there? Is a, let's see, does encouraging one another mean confronting one another's sins and calling for their repentance on the daily? Let's see, encourage one another daily. Yeah, you want to encourage people to turn more and more away from sin to to talk. Um, transparently with people about your own struggles with sin um, and talk about how we need to analyze our own thoughts. We need to monitor our affections. We need to think about what are the steps that I, I, I followed last time I committed my besetting sins and try to cut those things off, try to, to remove the occasions that, that lead us to sin. We should constantly be helping each other out. That's why throughout my entire ministerial life and, and by God's grace, even when I first got saved when I was a freshman in college, I immediately started meeting with guys. I knew I needed FaceTime with guys. I needed to open scripture and read scripture with guys, talk about stuff, and pray pray together. And it's hard to do that because everything in you wants to be a caveman, but we can't do that. We have to, to keep persevering and, and being with one another and encouraging one another to press on in the faith and to fight against sin and to put it to death and to move on and to take whatever steps we need to, to cut off those occasions of sin. Okay. Uh, is that part of the means of helping someone in their sanctification? Yeah. Confronting someone. In fact, the, uh, the term that's used is, uh, in fact, I don't think it's used in Hebrews <coughs> three here. I don't think it's new to confront, to, uh, admonish or confront. Let's see. Uh, encourage is probably, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Parakalao to, to beseech, to exhort, urge. Um, but yeah, the, the term, uh, in Romans 14, uh, admonish, where's that? Yeah. Romans, uh, Romans 15 verse 14, you are able to admonish one another. And that's that term, uh, That's where you get the, the, uh, idea of nuthetic counseling comes from that Greek verb nuthetao that's used in, uh, Romans 15, 14. Um, you are filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. You are able to counsel one another. Nuthetao, to admonish, means to confront. And most biblical counseling is that. It's confronting, confronting sin and, and dealing with, with sin. That's what most counsel, biblical counseling is. That's why a lot of people will say, 
you know, I don't, I don't want biblical counseling. Why? Because they know, they know it's going to confront them with all kinds of sin that they, they need to change. I mean, a lot of times guys have to tell me uh, stuff that I'm doing wrong or, or did wrong. And you got to be confronted about stuff like that. And it's, it's tough. It hurts. Um, okay. When does it cross the line into <clears throat> legalism? Uh, when you, if you ever start trusting in it or relying on it, uh, for any kind of assurance or if you like your sanctification or anything like that, that's the, that's the great paradox of the Christian faith. People think you can only get real holiness if you hinge salvation on works. It's just the opposite. The only way you can get true holiness is by people being completely set free. Totally set free. With a free salvation by faith alone. Completely apart from works. Then and only then will you get real holiness. Will you have a real Christian life. And so that's so important. That's why Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. From all of man's religions, all of man's rules and regulations, uh, as a means of salvation, we are we receive Christ. We we rely upon His finished work and nothing that we do, nothing else at all. We trust only in the Lord Jesus to save us. And Paul says in Galatians five one, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And I would suggest to you, any teaching, I don't care if it's Piper or Doug Wilson or whoever. If they add works to what faith is, or they in some way make our salvation contingent on how faithful we are, how good we are, our works, or anything like that, that is being subject to a yoke of bondage. That's what we're commanded. Do not, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You believe in the all-sufficiency of the work of Christ, and then enjoy walking with the Lord. I think that's one thing. I don't do that enough. I don't enjoy my communion with the Lord the way that I ought to. I don't, I don't enjoy God as much as I should. And part of me thought, maybe I spend so much time trying to combat false teaching <laughs> that it's almost oppressive, you know? It's like you, you read all this garbage, and it's like, it's, it's so oppressive to hear people spitting in the face of Christ. Maybe I just need to focus on just on the truth and just soak that in and just be thankful for who Jesus is and what he did to save me from my sins. Maybe there'd be more, more joy in that. Now you gotta, you have to fight those battles. You have to fight the war uh, for the truth. Uh, like Paul did, like, you know, half the new Testament is a, is a, is combating false doctrine on the incarnation, on the gospel and lots of other things. Um, so it's very, 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 very important. I understand uh, what you mean, Pastor. As an apologist, I start with that as well. Yeah, you spend so much time with your nose, like looking at and, and reading all these spin doctors and subtlety of speech and you know fork-tongued stuff, where people are talking out of both sides of their mouth and then they're succeeding in deceiving people. It's oppressive stuff. It is spiritually oppressive, like studying the Federal Vision oppressive listening to, to piper preach about final salvation that just makes it hard to sleep at night and i just think i had i've had to learn to just trust god the sheep of christ will hear the voice of christ they will not be led astray by this they will not be led astray by this but some sheep will have their assurance hurt and and they will be hurt uh, by that those teachings because it will throw their assurance in for for a loop Okay, and that's why we have to constantly call people back to the simple gospel. How are we justified? By faith in Christ, not by works. 
faith in Christ, not by works. That's what gets us all the way into heaven. It's the final judgment um, fell on the Lord Jesus, so it, it doesn't fall on us. But isn't there a judgment of works? Yes, there is a judgment of works for rewards. Uh, that's not how we gain eternal life. That's not how we're justified before God. That was achieved by Christ and by Christ alone. In fact, I'm, I'm five pages in. I've got just a couple more pages i got to write for my sermon uh, to, or, uh, su- Sunday morning. Preaching on the death of Christ in Luke 23 and the burial of Christ. Like, wow, what a, I mean, you think about all the miracles that happened, you know, right when Jesus dies. And I never really noticed this. That's one of the cool things about being a pastor is I get to study the Bible like all the time and look real closely at it. But all these miracles take place. <laughs> like simultaneously, Jesus dies and it says that in the text, the sun failed. <laughs> I just love the, the Greek term. The sun failed. It just goes dark for three hours. There's an earthquake. Rocks are split. And a whole bunch of people come out of the, their graves and walk around in Jerusalem. And the people that are there that are that are watching it, it says that they, they were they were pounding their chests, beating their breasts as they walked away. Then you have that Roman centurion. He gets saved. He watched all this. He watched how Jesus dealt with being mocked and ridiculed jesus didn't ridicule anybody back when he was slandered and people had real nasty things to say to him he didn't fire back he was quiet he prayed for them the way that he handled death and even the roman centurion watched all this the conversation between the three men jesus and the two men by him the, the son of god surrounded by two men crucified they're both reviling him and all of a sudden There's a huge change of heart in one of them. Do you not even fear God, he says to the other, seeing that we are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive due reward of our deeds. And I'll tell you what, I can see a lot of people nailed to a cross being upset that this is not fair. I don't care what anybody did. No one deserves to die like this. But here you have a man nailed to a cross in agony, in agony and suddenly he realizes this is righteous i'm getting what i deserve what a manifestation of repentance this is what i deserve and then with all of his courage he just turns to jesus and prays lord remember me when you come into your kingdom And then you have Jesus' wonderful words of assurance. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It's a glorious thing. It's an amazing thing. All those miracles take place right as he dies. You know, the last thing he said, he probably said it is finished and then said right as the very last thing he said, um, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then he dies. And it's, a, it's an incredible thing. You, you have God incarnate. The, the love and mercy of God comes into the world in Jesus Christ. And what a testimony to human depravity. He's mocked, spit on, beat to a pulp, crucified, has a crown of thorns on his head. And then he's dead. They, they uncrucify him. And that's, that's a terrifying thing to, to read about. A, a really trying to get someone off of a cross would cause more damage to them than than actually nailing them to it. He's taken off the cross, wrapped up, and laid in the tomb, dead. 
with all those marks all over his body, dead. Just lacerated up from the scourging, the holes in his wrists and his feet, his side, he's a spear thrust to his side, his face all bruised up, beat up, cut up, the, the um, deep puncture wounds from the crown of thorns. There you go. There's, there's a testimony to humanity right there. God sends his own son into the world, and that's where he ends up. Beat to a pulp. Dead. Crucified. Beaten. Scourged. Spit on. Why? To save the people that did that to him. You know, it says that they were beating their breasts. We know about 40 days later or so, Peter goes back into town, preaches, and he says to those people, you guys are the ones. You have taken him by lawless hands. You have crucified and put him to death. But God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And when the same group hears all this, it says they were cut to the heart. New Reformation apologetics, you want to know what repentance is? There it is. What does it mean to be cut to the heart? Kata nusamai. Kata nusamai. Is a word that's only used one time in the New Testament. It means to stab. (laughs) They were stabbed in the heart. Stabbed in the heart with what? With guilt. Have you ever been stabbed to the heart with guilt? Or you just thought, it would be wrong for God to let me into heaven. It'd be wrong for him to let me into heaven. It would be wrong for God not to condemn me. But God condemned Jesus in our place. So he could love us. Despite the fact that we're covered with warts and have so many sin problems and are discontent and fuss and cry and whine all the time about every little thing that goes wrong. You know, that's how God demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're wondering, can I really know that that God loves me? If you have been cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit over the sinful life you've lived, and you've received and are resting on Jesus alone, his righteousness alone, his cross alone, to get you all the way into heaven, you can know that God loves you. I love that passage, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice it doesn't say, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, everything that we ever wanted to to go a certain way in our life went that way and everything worked out great. While we were yet sinners, everything that I ever prayed for, God gave me. While we were yet sinners, all the hard work that I put into my family, into my work and everything, it all paid off and everybody appreciated it. (laughs) No, we know he loves us because Jesus died for us. A lot of times the stuff we work on is going to fail. A lot of the stuff we pour our hearts into fails. A lot of times trials happen we could never even have imagined they would happen. A lot of times things happen that break our our hearts so badly we wonder if we're ever going to recover. If we'll ever be the same. And it might be God's will that we're never the same because of trials. But that fact from history, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the demonstration of the love of God. Eventually, something's going to kill me. Eventually, something's going to kill you. Something's going to take us all out of this world. An illness, a sickness, an accident. Who knows what it's going to be? We live in a, a world of sorrows, a world that's 
that's groaning under the curse of God, under the curse of sin. And we ourselves are part of that. We, we commit sin against each other. We, we commit sin against ourselves, against God. And yet the fact of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ stands as an inalterable testimony to God's love for his people. So my prayer is that you've all been cut to the heart. Have you been katanusami, stabbed in the heart? <laughs> and they say, they say to Peter, what shall we do? And the, the implication there is, what shall we do to be saved? How can we be forgiven of what we did? And Peter gives them the gospel. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Repent, be baptized. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Such a simple message. And yet it's so, it's just being distorted right and left. And that's why, you know, I'm trying to push to make it clear. Oh, I wanted to tell everyone before I sign off here. I uh, have been working on a, a book project for a while. And it's out there on Kindle now. <clears throat> and uh, it's a book I wrote. It's 23 sermons that I, I pulled out of my hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons that I've written over the last many, many, many years. And they're all on key subjects facing the church. And I, it's a book I, I wrote called Redrawing the Battle Lines. 23 sermons on critical issues facing the church. And it's out there on Kindle. And it's also paperback and hardback on uh, Amazon. And let me uh, pull up a, a link to it here. Um, so it just got published uh, today. So it is actually out there. You can, you can purchase it. Uh, I'll put a link to it in here over on the channel uh, thing, and uh, let's see here, yeah, there it is, hopefully you can see that, or see the link, I'll, I'll put it in the description um, of the video, but um, by the way, wow, we're at the 53 minute mark, okay, well, everybody, I love y'all, thank you all for um, for tuning in, and I'm gonna, you know, want to try to get more videos up, just been super, super busy lately, and uh, I'm determined to try to do that a little bit more, I'm also going to try to start streaming from uh, uh, my brother Rich's channel which is bigger um but we'll we'll get information on that out uh, to you all hopefully um if we're able to do that sometime in the coming weeks uh, but that said uh love y'all um thank you all for tuning in and thank you all for your encouragement and your kindness to me and your support for my ministry thank you all i'll talk to y'all later Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can visit us on the web at bridwellheightschurch.com where all the sermons and podcasts are put into our sermon audio feed, which is accessible in iTunes as well as the podcast app. You are welcome to join us any Sunday morning for Sunday school for all ages at 10 a.m. and then worship for everyone at 11 a.m. If you ever have any questions about the Christian faith or the Bible, you can email me at pastor at bridwellheightschurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.